Welcome to Truth Behind Travel Podcast, the world's first podcast dedicated to travel recovery. I'm Dolores Semeraro, and I'm on a mission to help tourism organizations and travel professionals to lead a business that restores confidence in travel. If you're looking for a travel podcast that gives you more than just wanderlust and will help you travel better tomorrow, you've found the right one. Every week, my travel and tourism industry guests will share with you their stories and insights to help you travel smarter, better, and more conscious of the impact you have when you travel. Subscribe to the show to receive a new episode every Thursday straight to your inbox, together with travel tips and best practices of my podcast guests. Hello and welcome back, or welcome to Trip Behind Travel Podcast, if you are joining for the first time. You heard the intro. It's all about travel better on this podcast. So when I came across the work that my guest today is doing behind the scenes, not just of the tourism industry, but any industry really, that wants to invest in sustainability, I knew you were going to love it. My guest today is a sustainability and environmental specialist from Canada. But that's not where we're going. Today, we're heading to Playa del Carmen in Mexico, where Jordan Flagel is partially based, heading the operations of three explorations, ecotrips designed around conservation and supporting local economies of Belize, Guyana and Jamaica. So that's where we're going today. Buckle up, because the conversation today is all about ecotourism in the Amazon jungle, how to offset carbon emissions, and where are we heading with the future of travel and tourism. Real quick before we start, on today's episode, Jordan tells me that much of his audience and his ideal customers actually find him and his tours through online search. And so he's dedicated a consistently and quality content on his blog and his website. But did you know that 50% of travelers today have shifted their brand loyalty to a new brand or a new product because they simply don't like what they read. So if you're listening to this podcast today and you work in the travel and hospitality industry, you're going to love the video training program I created for those just like you struggling to reconnect with their travel audience. The link is in the show notes. It's one of my free resources that will allow you to create a strong, winning, and new and fresh brand content that will restore the travel confidence of your audience. Head over to the show notes and get the link. Now, let's welcome Jordan. Welcome back to the show and welcome, Jordan. Welcome to Truth Behind Travel Podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. How are you? Thank you. I'm I'm great. Thank you for having me. Well, we connected recently at uh, the Work Travel Summit that we joined together as a as a we were part of the speakers and moderators uh, across the summit event, and a lot of that event gathered um, the future of travel in terms of working remotely, working digitally. So a whole different niche and and, and crowd there. You yourself are. A remote worker in a way you you are embodying this this new lifestyle and you are now based in Mexico so welcome to the show tell us a little bit about yourself I basically work remotely like a typical remote worker on my computer on my laptop um, doing environmental work but I also have been running my tree organization for the past few years and that is that's focused more on travel on uh, experiential learning in travel. 
So what we do is try to help conservation in areas that we go to through ecotourism. So if people find you online and, you know, browse a little bit the world of social media, find you on LinkedIn, uh, they read the title Sustainability and Environmental Specialist. And that's the core work that you do across not just the, uh, the tourism industry, but any industry, really. How did that start? Well, it started way back in university. Um, I was an athlete. I played football and basketball. And it took up most of my life. Um, I think it was around 60, 60 to 70 hours a week. Uh, very little time for school. I realized that um, after an injury that that wasn't a, a viable, um, I guess, career path or you know, it wasn't worth just focusing on, on athletics. So I looked for what my passion would be uh, academically. I really love geography. I, I just love, you know, where places were and, and kind of the, um, yeah, that aspect of learning about different cultures, different places, um, different landscapes, all of that. So geography as a, as a discipline isn't just about where things are. It, it's a lot about the, land, the landscape. It's a lot, about, a lot about physical geography. So I learned a lot about the uh, geology, a lot about the ecosystems of different areas, and I loved it. And the one thing that I learned that really struck a chord with me was about sustainable development. So I ended up graduating with a degree in geography, but it was a focus in sustainable development. And I'm from Calgary, Alberta in Canada, which is the Texas of Canada. It's uh, Oil is the main thing. And so while all my friends were going on to be accountants and engineers for oil companies, my idea was to work on the reclamation side. So basically cleaning up after oil companies. That was the plan, but I never really got there because <laughs> for some reason I, I applied for um, an opportunity to work with the um, International Institute for Sustainable Development. And they had a program through the Canadian International Development Agency and they had these placements around the world to to work in um, largely in developing areas, but uh, out in the field. So I applied for one in South Africa, in Ghana and Guyana. And I ended up getting the placement in Guyana. And I grew up in a city my whole life. And when I, <laughs> I moved to the middle of the Amazon rainforest to work at a research center, and that changed my life. I had to learn to, to live in the forest, basically. And I was taught by all the local indigenous people that I worked with and just the, the relationships I developed and what I learned about the ecosystems there is something I couldn't even learn in school. Uh, you can't really learn what the trees are unless you see them up front. And I, and I was taught by, by amazing people on the ground. So from there, that, that changed my whole trajectory. And I started working in the field. Um, I went and did two master's degrees um, in environmental management and in integrated science and technology. When it came to tree, my, my thesis for my one master's degree was how to use ecotourism to fund protected areas. I wanted to go back to Guyana and, and work in the, with the Iwakrama forest, which is where I had originally worked. And they were looking at using tourism more and more to fund their operations because they relying on, don on donations and on grants was very difficult, especially with the worldwide economic situation fluctuating. Tourism was a way that could be more in their control. And I looked at what the ideal amount of tourism would be 
that provided enough money for them to to fund this protection, but wasn't too much that it started degrading the land. And it ended up being about 25%, about one quarter capacity is the ideal amount of, of tourists to have that brings in enough money to, to run the place, but yeah, it, it won't have a negative impact on the environment. So that, that's how the idea for tree came about. Um, and Guyana was one of our, our pilot and um, mainstay areas. And we run trips there. Belize is the other one. Uh, I spent the most time in Belize actually working for an NGO called Ecology Project International. Um, so again, it's developing those relationships and understanding of the land that allows these tree trips to be run. Um, because I, I couldn't do this if I just came in from Canada and just try to run trips. I, I really have these uh, deeper relationships and deeper understanding and work with the local people, uh, local organizations, um, partners, everything. I like, I like that presence. I like that sense of initiative. But I wonder how much of that journey was actually made difficult by the people you were supposed to work with? In other words, the authorities, did you feel supported? Did you feel um, support, uh, helped along your journey? I felt welcomed, but not necessarily supported. Uh, there was no efforts to try, try to stop it or, or make it any more difficult or anything like that. But there also wasn't any, um, you know, they weren't reaching out to me being like, yeah, let us help you to do this more. It was more just um, like, yeah, welcome. You can do what you want. Um, it's great what you're doing, but we're not offering that much um, assistance. So I've got to work directly with the organizations a lot. And the organizations themselves have been amazing. Um, especially the Iwakrama Center in Guyana. So I, I coordinate those trips and I coordinate the, the transportation in, in Guyana and everything. But once we get to the actual research center, you know, it, as, as well as I know the area and everything, I like the idea of handing it over to a local guide. And I kind of become part of the trip. And, you know, I know it and I could lead it, but I, I feel like it's much better to, to have it this way. In Guyana, it's more centralized. We, we started the research center, and that's kind of where everything goes out of. Um, we only go one other area of the country that is um, separate, and I, that's where I, I lead that part. But in Belize, we go to a much smaller country. We go to a lot of different areas, and that's more I have to actually plan it because I'm working with multiple um, stakeholders. And instead of one main organization, I work with a lot of um individuals, a lot of smaller organizations, lodges, um, transportation companies, stuff like that. So yeah, it really depends on which country we're in and also um, how, how we work with the organizations uh, that we're partnered with. So it's not about the support or let's say the technical support that you might want or might not get from the local authorities, but it's more about the collaboration and the partnerships that you established with the private sectors and the communities of the places where you operate trips. So let, let's talk about these trips because I've, I've seen the website. It looks amazing. And the three explorations are your very own answer to, to showcase. Actually, I, don't, I wouldn't know if it's the right word, showcase or show off really, to, to really tell people that ecotourism to build a different sustainable future of tourism is possible not just possible but also successful so tell me about 
three explorations, the mission and the values of, of the team. You're not one man show. You work with different people on, on site. So how, how does it work when somebody book a trip? Our, our tagline is conservation through exploration. So what we want is for you to come on these trips and you don't have to do anything other than participate and you will help conservation in these areas. That's how you set it up. And that's why we're not everywhere. We're not, we're not in Mexico uh, right now. Um, we, we haven't expanded anywhere really because I want to make sure that I can do this in a way that is truly beneficial. Um, I, I'm not interested in greenwashing. And because I also work in other areas of sustainability and more on a, um, you know, with consulting and that kind of stuff, this doesn't have to be a, a mega profitable um, venture. That What I want this to be is, is a truly impactful um, experience that helps the local environments and also helps all the people that take these trips to have, have life-changing experiences. I, I want them to take back some of what they learn on these trips to use in everyday life when they go back to Europe or the U.S. or wherever they're from. My main partner in Belize um, is uh, Emil Greenwich. He's somebody I worked with when I, I worked in the NGO down there. And um, you know, he's a guy I, I trust with my life. He's, he's like a brother and, and he helps run things on the ground down there. And then in Iwakrama, the director, um, Dr. Raquel Thomas Caesar, she is, um, again, like a good friend, somebody I trust immensely. And I work directly with her when we do these trips. I don't want to come in and be taking over in, in these countries. So we make sure that every vendor we use in Belize is benefiting economically from us helping them. And we use vendors who are who have practices that are much better on the environment. They've been vetted. They're people I've known for years. So that's that's how we make these trips sustainable and, and contribute to conservation. Because to me, if we're not helping local communities, I, I don't even want to do this because I, I do not want to exploit or in any other way do something where I benefit and the people who live and work and, and are from there do not benefit. And this is to say what's in it for the local communities, what's in it for the local economies, for the local vendors, and also what's in it for three. So what's in it for the traveler? It's a life-changing experience. So it, how so? Something about getting into that rainforest and you're just away from all, all of the, the, what you consider civilization, the nature, the landscape, it's so powerful and so different that it, it affects you to your core. I'm trying to give people experiences that are something you can't get just in a, a guided tour that you get off a cruise ship and take because, because of the connection with local people. And so that relationship with the land and then with the people is huge. I think these trips are smaller. Um, they're usually just, you know, between like two to six people for me, I, I feel like we provide um, again, life changing experiences with that nature and the people aspect together. And again, if, if you've never been to Guyana, you're in the middle of the most densely forested place on earth because the Amazon has had a lot of clear cutting and a lot of damage in Brazil, just south of there. But in Guyana, it's, it's largely pristine. There's a less than 1% deforestation rate in Guyana. Who is not your ideal traveler, let's say? I try to make it so anybody can be an ideal traveler. So the whole point of the tree trip is to make it so you you will contribute 
to conservation, whether you want to or not. One of the big things I work on is how to um, how we can change our our energy usage and our our energy source so that people can stop contributing to climate change, uh, whether they care or not. I mean, I've had conversations on the podcast where for some of the local communities, the ecotourism operators were even sort of limiting the number and number of devices that you would carry with you or that you would use when directly in contact with the local communities, just to, you know, to preserve that integrity and not to try to, yes, we we might want to leave our footprint in a positive way uh, when we interact with local communities by contributing to their economy. But by being there itself, we are, we are compromising the integrity of their culture and how they come across with external interaction. So for example, this operator was even forbidding to a certain extent, of course, the use of mobile phones when they were walking through the villages. It's something like that, that that you can, like something like this happens during the trips? Again, we're very fortunate that our trips are very small. So we haven't had to deal with that very much. Where are the groups mostly from in this case for you? Canada, the US, Australia, and Europe mainly. Back to what, to what you said before, I think it's very important. I, I hate the idea of going through the the village. The one village is located within the Iwakrama borders and walking through and taking photos and, and acting like it's some sort of a human zoo. We don't do that because, first of all, we have a we have kind of a baseline relationship that we establish with people that are from the village when we are in the um, the, at the research center there. And I make sure that we only do anything that we've been invited to do. It took four months when I was living at the research center before people in the village were comfortable enough to to invite me in. In terms of ecotourism, I see this used quite a lot um, recently as as the you know the the especially for the african continent restarting tourism reviving communities trying to uh, to keep the money within the the spectrum of where it's spent instead of having money spent here that then poof flies out into um, some international you know hospitality multinational or something like that some companies so where do you think the ecotourism development will go? Like, what do you see ahead? Tourism is going to move more towards ecotourism and more towards incorporating sustainable um, initiatives or, or just, yeah, the way it's run. And I feel like that should be the way forward um, for any for any kind of travel company that is operating outside of the country. And then the partnerships that we have, I think that's very important. So if you genuinely care, you're going to be on the right track and you might have to, to maybe change as you go to make sure you're doing everything the, the best uh, of your ability or, or, you know, to the best way possible for the environment. But that, that caring is the main thing because that'll ensure that you go down the right path, at least I think. I like that you say caring is the main thing and the main sort of driver because I've I've seen recently um, a couple of articles where making sustainability profitable for your business. So in this case, for a lot of the podcast listenerships, for example, being in tourism, travel and hospitality or 
operating a tourism business, perhaps cross culture, uh, cross countries, for example, what would you recommend to an organiz- to a tourism organization that moves its first steps into into this sphere and and obviously starts with good intention in mind, but at the same time, little budget coming from the last few months, where can an organization get started? Sustainability can be profitable done right and is actually an incentive, I think, um, because it it also ensures less waste. um, It ensures a better, more holistic uh, relationship with the environment and with people. So again, it comes back to, first of all, I I think you should genuinely want to do it. Airplanes emit CO2, um, and that's an issue we are facing right now. And there's ways to offset, and and we're looking at better and better ways to do that and and more reliable ways to do that. But I feel that a lot of people don't separate the fact that planes emit CO2 because of the jet fuel that is used, whereas a lot of people want to tie airplanes and travel into being carbon-intensive no matter what, whereas all we need to do is come up with a better type of biofuel, maybe smaller electric plane. There's a lot of different solutions and we can always find um, or usually always find a better solution, not just say airplanes are bad. We need to get rid of them. We could say they're bad right now. We can figure out a way to make them better. So again, the more knowledge you have in what sustainability really entails, then the better off you'll be. It's almost impossible to to think that like you see, I, I asked you before, where are your main, where are your travelers from? What are your main clients from? Like what, what, what countries are they from? And you, you said yourself, I mean, they're not locals. They are from another country, another continent. They're probably flying across the world to join a once in a lifetime experience where yes, they are going to have a life-changing experience and they are supporting the greater cause of you know the mission and what the and what three stands for in this case but at the same time the more we want to connect people from place a to place b the more in depth we go into places that are off the beaten tracks so where we want to show people and and connect communities with opportunities to be seen through ecotourism but yet we got to move people there. We, we have to have a flight that gets there. So the in, in one of the recent events that I moderated um, online, we talked about the future of hospitality as a rewildering process. We are going to rewild hospitality, meaning going more remote, going farther, going uh, more isolated, more nature immersed. Yet we need to connect these places. So the, the wilder you go, the more likely is a plane to try or an airplane or an airport trying to reach the place where you want to, you know, supposedly be wild. And even moving across these locations, you mentioned electric vehicles. Now, realistically, how many electric vehicles are available in the Amazon forest? I think the the awareness and the base knowledge needs to be there for, for us in the in the hospitality and travel industry to work towards these changes without you know if without pretending that 
it's okay because we're bringing tourism to these destinations and they deserve a little bit of uh, visibility and glory. But at the same time, yes, we're bringing fuel, we're bringing uh, diesel to move vehicles, we're bringing, you know, other things that are compromising the integrity of that place. So I'm always, I'm always a strong believer that if there is a good intention set at the beginning, ultimately the end game and, you know, the final, the final product is something that it will never be perfect but it will be better than just another product that completely ignores this, you know, law, the basic elements of the future of travel. Ah, personal, I feel. I agree with you a lot on, on what you just said. Um, and yeah, these challenges that I, I love to take on. One of the main things that I'm doing right now, um, I didn't mention in my, my quick bio, um, I'm a fellow with the Energy Futures Lab in Canada. And what that organization is trying to do is um, find a better energy future for Canada, but also for the world um, to, to try to have it as an example. Um, we are trying to get away from oil, and towards more carbon-free sources of energy, which is obviously very difficult. But this this fellowship is full of people from, you know, some some major executives from oil companies, from from government agencies, um, some big private enterprises that that either deal in energy or don't. So one of the things I've actually uh, worked on and, and been a part of is, so you mentioned diesel. Uh, in the Amazon because so yeah there's there's very very few electric vehicles because that's not practical it's actually probably not safe because you're, you're going to need um you need some sort of fuel supply sometimes because you won't a charge won't get you far enough because things don't always go as planned you know, even the road to the Iwakurama center can vary between eight hours and 20 hours depending on the state of the road so electric vehicles are not a good idea the thing is, diesel isn't the only other option, or, or even gasoline. Um, there are forms of, of fuel that are relatively easy to make that are carbon neutral. So a, a good one is actually renewable methanol. And you can make that using captured CO2 and using uh, wind or solar and the other type of renewable energy. It basically stores the renewable energy uh, in a liquid form, in a combustible liquid form. So this would be ideal for the Amazon. Um, actually, that was developed to be used in Africa, uh, in rural Africa. This, this renewable methanol uh, was a project I was working on. So again, it's really, it's decoupling from this idea that energy equals carbon dioxide and equals, you know, bad things. Impact. It doesn't. Yeah, it's just the way we've always done it. Um, it's just the way it's been done since the industrial, industrial revolution. There's no reason why we can't change that. Electric vehicles are a great start, but again, there's other ways such as methanol. Um, my, my big one I want to work on that I don't have the resources for it yet, but I, I want this to be a future thing. It's very, very important to me is how we can make flying less carbon intensive because we can. And anyone who says we can't, I don't know what their agenda is, but there is no reason why we can't because it is just the type of fuel we are using. And again, electric might not be the way to go because there's no way you can power a 747 on, you can't even power a 737 on, elect, on electricity or at least in any efficient way. It, it would be a, 
it would not be good. But the smaller aircraft, especially the ones that you fly, you know, in Belize to fly to the islands, to fly even from, from Mexico here into Belize, you fly the little Beechcraft, um, those little airplanes, they could be electrified easily. Um, and then the larger ones, again, we could find some sort of biodiesel, maybe something along the lines of that renewable methanol that would, that could be used. And then it becomes a different problem. How do we generate enough of this, you know, and source it to be able to use it and get it in the global fleet? But these are challenges. But like I said, I love these challenges and addressing them. The payout is huge. The good news is you don't have to address that as a tour operator. Um, you just have to keep doing your best in the local area that you're doing. Um, when if that, that methanol or anything like that is available to use that if you can, because you can modify a gasoline or diesel engine very easily to use that other fuel. So little things like that that you can, I think is important. And then the bigger things, that's where the policy and more of the, the larger scale things need to be done. But um, I'm just grateful to be working on that on both sides of the of this equation. And who do you think are the early adopters, so to speak, um, moving forward in, in, in the tourism industry or, in, you know, in the transportation, connectivity, leisure, you know, all that comes around enabling people to travel? I, I think it can be up to anybody, um, just those who are more aware. So, again, when there's, when there's different types of fuel available that can lower... CO2 impact, whoever is on top of that or is, is aware or looking for it can be the ones to, to jump on that. Uh, Norway, for instance, they've made sizable portion of their ferry fleet electric. I spent about a month in Norway and, and got to see a lot of the fjords and stuff. And I saw that they're pretty big, uh, these electric ferries. But to me, that's, that's huge because each of those, over time, right, those, those ferries, if they're using diesel, over time, that's a lot of CO2 and putting that to electricity. And especially in Norway, which is very important because they get almost all of their electricity from hydropower, which is carbon free. So these ferries, they're very large and take a lot of electricity, but they're not charging that electricity um, from coal. They're getting it from hydro. So it's actually carbon free. Now, Norway has a ton of resources. They have a, a trillion dollar fund for a country of five million people. It's a little unfair. Um, you know, to, to use that as an example uh, for every other country, but it just shows what's possible. And uh, I just like that. I like examples like that. And what do you think of those destinations that are high on international travel for, you know, high standards, high reputation, tropical destinations, for example, where you definitely have to get there by plane uh, most of the time, long hauls, what would you suggest to them to start somehow implementing baby steps, but something I know some of the podcast listeners will be listening to this and will be probably taking home some golden nuggets from somebody like you. So I guess for now, the, the biggest thing is for anyone who goes to offset your flight in a way that is, um, that's verifiable and trustworthy. So offsetting does work. Um, I actually do, some work in the offsetting side. I'm, I'm trying to set it up where um, we can actually take tree trips to see the offsetting sites. Um, so you can see the trees that are there and planted and you can actually understand how it's working because again, offsetting is like trees, different types of trees sequester different amounts of CO2. It also matters where they're planted. 
um, trees in Canada versus trees in Guyana. They, the trees in Guyana would take in more CO2. And then there's types that grow very fast. There's types that grow very slow. Some reach maturity and take in a lot of CO2. Some, like the Socropia tree, they can start taking CO2 in their first year. They grow very, very fast. If you can make sure you offset with a very reputable uh, way, then you can actually make that difference. Um, and it's not just greenwashing, especially if you're only taking, like if that's your big trip for the year and you know you really want to see this place, I think I, I'm definitely an advocate that you should do it. Just offset your CO2. It, it's a partnership that, that Tree has, not a, um, maybe it could go into the category of the, the booking uh, kind of partners you talked about, but um, maybe you're, some of your listeners have, have heard of uh, Terra Incognita. And it is basically a, I, I think it's one of the leading ecotourism um, hubs uh, for information, but also for, um, for organizations to be a part of. And they have a, an ethical certification that you can apply for that might be good for um, some of your listeners. Um, we, Tree was actually a founding signatory. So they, they created this, this ethical certification but I, I work directly with the people at Terra Incognita to help develop some of the parameters um, for how it's measured, for how um, it can be enforced, um, along with there's a group of other uh, ecotourism pro- providers. Again, maybe some of your listeners are actually a part of that. Yeah, I just highly recommend to take a look. Good that you mention it. And at the same time, if you wish to leave any direct link on the show notes that our listeners can find uh, directly for three, for example, or if there is some new project you're working on uh, where people can find you and get, get in contact with you, please, we will put the link in the, in the show notes as well. Thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. I leave you to the rest of your day. Mine is at the end of that's the beauty of speaking to a person on the other side of the world. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, I was. I'd love to um, be a part of the mission that you are trying to achieve here. Thank you for joining me today on Truth Behind Travel podcast. My mission here is to help you travel better and plan better. So I hope that this episode has helped you and inspired you to start your journey towards sustainable travel, whether you're working in hospitality and travel and tourism or you are the traveler. All the links to get to know more about Jordan's work and three explorations in Belize, Guyana and Jamaica are in the show notes. And do share your views with a review on Apple Podcast. You know, it helps the show to be seen by more people and the episodes to be discovered by those like you who want to travel better and value authentic and trustworthy information. Thank you and see you next week.